I thought, what's about church time? I should see what Mike has to say, and it was excellent. And uh, of course, he, you know, he noted that when I called him, so Mike was actually supposed to preach today. This was, he was scheduled to preach today because I was supposed to be out of town. We were going to be on vacation. And then uh, five out of seven of us got strep throat, and uh, it's, it's no joke, especially if you're a dude. <laughs> you know, I got it bad. Stephanie got it. She got a pretty mild case of it. And I don't mean mild because she's a woman. I mean mild, even her throat wasn't as red, and she didn't have all the blister. You know what I'm saying? I think she was faking, if I'm just being completely honest. I think she wanted a rest day. But uh, So when I got it, I thought, well, I'm going to just get a little mild case, and it absolutely knocked the tar out of me. And so I called Mike last Saturday and said, hey, how would you like to preach tomorrow instead of next Sunday? And of course, he's always willing and ready, and so I appreciate that. But uh, as, he, as he stated last week, I told him, I said, man, you can preach anything. Don't worry about the series. Uh, just preach what you want to, brother, whatever's on your heart. And he goes, yeah, right. <laughs> I know better than that. So he's wised up a little bit. We'll say that for sure. He, he knows me. So uh, we're in Romans 8. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. And, uh, and we'll go on down through verse 9. So Romans 8, verse 1, down to verse number 9. There is therefore now no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So when it says the law was weak through the flesh, it's talking about our flesh, our physical nature, the law uh, isn't flawed. It's just that we're flawed and there's no way that we can upkeep the law. And it's not our job to do so. And we do grow weak and weary when we endeavor uh, to, to live out, as we've talked about, a performance-based performance Christianity. Uh, performance-based Christianity rarely works out well for the performer. And we pointed out in, in previous messages that uh, if, if, if your worth in the eyes of God or your acceptance in the eyes of God in your own mind is based upon how well you do, how, how good you perform, you're eventually either going to get, become very arrogant and, uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll get a holier-than-thou attitude because you'll develop this mental disposition that because of what you do, that makes you better than those who don't do what you do. Or you'll become completely defeated and you'll throw your hands up and just walk away and say, man, I can't do this. I can't, I can't keep this up. I can't keep pretending. I can't keep acting. I can't, keep, I can't be one way at church on Sunday and a different way at church on Monday, right? And we do that. We tend to act one way at church. We tend to act a different way around our buddies. We tend to act a different way around our, 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 our fellow, uh, our neighbors, our, our coworkers. We, we act in different ways based on the, the setting that we're in. And, and ultimately, the answer to that is we have to quit acting. Because it's not an act. <laughs> if it becomes real to you, you don't have to put on a show. You don't have to perform. You don't have to change. You can be the same person you are tomorrow that you are today. And so when it says the law was weak through the flesh, that's our flesh. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't bear the weight of it. Verse 4, it says, uh, but Jesus, the, the latter part of verse number 3 says that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, we'll come back to that, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the laws of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this time that we have to gather in your, in your house, Lord, with your people. We pray that you'd meet with us today. Father, we pray that your truth would be so, so acutely accentuated in our hearts that we would be transformed by it. I pray that you'd use this time to both glorify your name and to strengthen us. God, give us what we need to press on another mile. Help us, Lord, to overcome our weaknesses. Help us to appropriate and live in the victory that's been purchased for us 
through the blood of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it all in his precious name. Amen. So I said that I was going to preach a whole sermon on Romans 8 verse 2. So notice the statement there, and Mike called me out on it last week, so I have to stick to this. All right. But Romans 8 verse number 2 says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That is a mouthful. There's a lot within that little verse right there. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And before we get to that, I want to begin by asking a question. And that question is simply this. What is it that, that we're all looking for in life? Really, don't answer out loud. But, but I want you to think about that. If we, if we consider life itself, if we just sort of take a moment and step back and analyze what we take for granted, why, what are we looking for? What is our pursuit? What do we want? What do you genuinely, if you, if, you, if you consider yourself, what do you genuinely want in life? Well, I don't know where your mind goes with that, but my mind immediately goes to our founding fathers, and I think about what they, they said concerning the purpose of, of the founding of our nation, Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, which this wasn't original to him, but we won't bother getting into that. But Thomas Jefferson in, in, the, in the Declaration of Independence said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that these, that among these are, and you probably know this next little line, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. So I suppose that that, that is our ultimate pursuit, isn't it? Our ultimate pursuit is to be happy. I think people just want to be happy. I want to be happy. You want to be happy? I mean, I, I like it when things are good. I like it when people are good. I like it when the spirit is light. You know what I'm saying? I like it when you're around somebody and they just kind of have a free spirit about them. There's just a, there's just a gentleness, a kindness, a, a jovial spirit that they possess, and they don't even have to necessarily walk around with permagrin. But at the same time, you can experience the fact that they are genuinely content in life, right? And conversely, you get around some people and they just, they just carry a heaviness with them. They bear almost a darkness and, and just, and again, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad this morning, but some of y'all are just pitiful to be around. <laughs> it's just depressing being in your presence. It brings me down. But, uh, but the truth is, joke, joke aside, it's, the fact is, I, I think ultimately what we want in, in life is just to be happy. I just want to be happy. Leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. Let's just, let's just pursue this thing called happiness. But a recent poll, I got kind of curious about this. I, I, I talk about the fact I'm a, I'm a fan of the show The Office. I think some of you are too. The Christians in the room are at least. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but, but, uh, but uh, Rain Wilson, one of the characters in the office, just put out a documentary uh, called The Pursuit of Bliss or The Pursuit of Happiness or something like that. And while I was laid up sick, I watched it. And it got me very, I got very interested in this, in this concept that, that people are, in, 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 the, in the series, it's kind of boring to be honest with you, Don't, you, you can watch it if you want to, but, uh, but, but he's traveling to different places in the world that, that, that studies have shown are generally just happy, just looking for happiness, which by the way, he said the reason he's done that is as being a megastar that he is, being a multimillionaire that he, being the multimillionaire that he is, he's really struggled with depression and discouragement and just general uh, discontentment in his life. And so he's actually seeking something as well. And uh, if Rain were sitting here today, I could tell him what he's looking for. But anyway, uh, the point is it got me, got me to doing some, some, some research and looking into some things. And, and I found a recent poll revealed that 70% of Americans are not happy. 70% of Americans are not happy. That's crazy. Now again, our, our nation was founded with, with the hopes that, that this would be a place where all men being equal could pursue life, liberty, and happiness, and that they could somehow find the, a level of contentment and, 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 and enjoyment in life. But 70% of Americans are, are considered, they consider themselves to be unhappy. And then uh, according to pollsters, think about this, and this actually has nothing much to do with what I'm about to say, but I found it, I found it very interesting. They said Massachusetts is the, is the happiest state in the, in the U.S., while Missouri ranks right at the bottom on the happiness scale. Look at this, next to Arkansas. Now, I've been to Arkansas, and I can understand that. 
the only good part of Arkansas is Northwest Arkansas, and it really should be Missouri. You know what I'm saying? But Missouri ranks toward the bottom. I thought, Massachusetts? Have you ever been to Boston? Like, have you ever met anybody from Boston, Massachusetts? I wouldn't consider them happy. They might park the car in the parking lot, but I don't think of those people as being happy people. But whatever. Boston being the uh, ranking the highest uh, toward the top of happiness and Missouri being toward the bottom. Again, I don't get that. But, uh, but then you, you, you have statements like this. Money can't buy happiness. And I don't know about that. You know what I mean? Like for real. If you study, if you study, let's, like if you study demographics, uh, study, study people who are on the lower end of, of the financial spectrum, they're not generally happy. In fact, the happiness uh, among people who are in poverty is very, very low, even in, in the United States. But here's what's interesting. Um, there's, there's a pendulum of happiness as it's related to money because we do think, okay, we're not going to sing, it can buy me a boat. We've done done that. That's old. But, uh, but money can't, obviously, it can't buy happiness, okay, on a technicality. Money cannot buy happiness. We get that. Uh, but, I, but I did find that there's a, there's a pendulum to happiness in, in relation to money, and, it, and it's called this. I doubt you ever heard of it because I never heard of it. Have, has anyone ever heard of what's called the Easterlin Paradox? Okay. I know something you don't know. So <laughs> the Easterlin Paradox is, uh, is essentially, uh, well, let me just read it to you. The Easterlin Paradox is, is a finding in happiness economics that was formulated in 1974 by Richard Easterlin, hence the name. Uh, he was a professor at that time of, of economics at the University of Pennsylvania, and he was the first economist to study happiness data. So the paradox states that, that at a point in time, happiness varies directly with income, both among and within nations, but over time, happiness does not trend upward as income continues to grow. That's what I found to be completely intriguing. Happiness does not continue to, to trend upward as income grows. While people on higher income levels are typically happier than their lower income counterparts, at a given point in time, and they can't discover exactly where this, this ranks, but at a given point in time, higher incomes do not produce greater happiness. So in other words, don't get too rich. Because there's, there is a shift where we, we all want to have enough, for sure. We want to have some creature comforts. We want to own some boats and some side-by-sides and drive at least a decent pickup truck that don't break down all the time. That's my goal in life. I don't know what yours are. But, you know, the point is there's, there, there is also an element of truth to the notion that money doesn't buy happiness because people with, with gobs of money, more money than they can ever spend in a lifetime, are also not happy. And just a very simple study of the wealthy in America would prove that. There's no, there's no difference between middle class as far as psychology is concerned, as far as their happiness levels are concerned. There's really not much different between those making 100000 a year and those making a million a year as far as happiness is concerned, and it's called the Easterlin Paradox. So, so money is just one of the many variables, okay? There are other things that can be considered, such as age. By the way, my age range is one of the unhappiest demographics in America. <laughs> I found that to be very interesting, but I also thought, oh, I can see it, right? We're too young to be old, but too old to be young. You know what I'm saying? No, you don't get that? I get it. Age is a variable. Um, certainly occupation, what you do for a living. Mental health is, is a factor. Um, family history can definitely factor into that, that equation. Um, circumstances. All these things play uh, major roles as well. But, but one of the things I found particularly interesting in, in that study is that studies indicate, now, now listen to this, the more we pursue happiness, the more unhappy we become. The more we pursue happiness, so if, if you set out in life, and, and you walk out of here today, and I'm sure you won't, but if you were to just set your mind to this, this, this concept, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dedicate the rest of my life to being happy. I'm going to pursue happiness. Every, every day I wake up in the morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek happiness. You will find they have discovered that, that people who pursue happiness, that make that the centerpiece of their goals in life, actually find themselves to be more and more unhappy, and they grow more and more discontent. And that's because life isn't about happiness. I like to be happy. I want you to be happy. I want us to all be happy together. 
But life itself is not about the pursuit of happiness. Life itself is actually about living. Life is about, uh, is about learning your purpose and understanding why you are here. And when you discover that, you will find happiness follows. So with that in mind, I want to draw your attention back to Romans chapter 8, verse number 2. And notice what he says. I, this, this passage just has captivated me. Verse 2 says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We could just we could spend so much time breaking all this down, but, but think about the, the, the statement, the law of the spirit of life. What is the law of the spirit of life? Well, if we, if we, if we try to dissect it a little bit, we understand is, uh, law is something binding, isn't it? Now, don't act like you done got this figured out. I've been noodling this around for weeks, all right? A law is something that's binding. A law is enforceable. So it says the law of the spirit of life in Christ. I think the, inter, the, the language is inter, interesting that, that he says that this spirit of life is a law. And then we understand, again, a law is in, in, indelible. We, we, and we talked about the Ten Commandments a little bit, the, the, the moral law of God. And we, we recognize the fact that it's the Ten Commandments, not Ten Suggestions, right? So, so we, we get it. When a law is set, that, that that law is supposed to be enforceable, that law is supposed to be binding. And so when it makes the statement, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it's explaining to us that this life that's, that we possess in Christ is something binding. It's something enforceable. It's not a suggestion. It's something that has to take place when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So I want to draw a few things out of this, okay? We could spend a few weeks on it. We'll see how you look here in a few minutes, all right? It'll depend on how far we get, but but let me, let me make a few statements about just the beginning part of verse number two. First of all, it, it tells us in, in explicit terms that God is the source of life. God himself is the source of life. Now, I'm going to point out a couple passages. We're going we're gonna to travel around just for a second. I want you to look with me in 1 Timothy chapter number six. 1 Timothy chapter number six in verse number 15. It says, Jesus is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, this next statement is what I want you to really pay attention to. It says, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So, so that verse right there explains to us many things about Jesus, but one of the things we see about Christ himself is that he's the only one who possesses immortality. You notice that? Okay, I know what's going on right now. You're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, no, duh, aren't you? That's what you're thinking. I can hear your thoughts. But this is, this is, this is a vital truth because we have been taught this notion that immortality is inherent to all human beings when the reality is Jesus himself alone possesses immortality. Did you see that? Jesus himself alone possesses immortality. I did a whole series on, the, uh, on Wednesday night on this subject, but I want you to notice also 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 9 says, Christ has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who did what? It says he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. And so, so we, we get this understanding, this concept laid out in the scripture that God alone possesses immortality. In other words, immortality is reserved for those who have trusted in Christ alone as Savior. It's conditional. It's not inherent. Did you know that? Did you know that immortality is, is not inherent to humanity? It's not just a part of our makeup. If it were, then why in the Garden of Eden did God place a tree called the tree of life? If inherently man was immortal. Immortality belongs to God himself. Now notice this, John chapter 14, verse number 6. Jesus said, uh, not 14, 6, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, 14, 6. <laughs> I was confused about my own notes for just a second there. John 14, 6. Do you ever argue with yourself? You just witnessed that happen in real time. 
John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I know where the confusion came from. I also meant to include in this John chapter number 10, where Jesus said, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Jesus said, I'm the one who gives the gift of eternal life. Did you know the, the thing when you put your faith in Christ was not heaven. I know we think that. Well, I got saved so I can go to heaven. Well, that is a benefit for sure, right? Definite, definite benefit. But when we put our faith in Christ, what we actually received in the moment was we received eternal life, which brings us to point number two, and that is eternal life is a present condition for those who have put their faith in Christ. I'm not waiting to have eternal life. I have eternal life abiding within me in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus being the source of immortality, Jesus being the source of eternal life, Jesus being the one, again according to the scripture, who alone possesses immortality. Therefore, when I entered into Christ and when Christ took up residence in me, what I received by grace through faith was eternal life in him. Eternal life, immortality, is the present possession of the believer in Christ. This is why Jesus, when Jesus said in John 10, what I just quoted, when he said, I give them eternal life, he said, they'll never perish. Did you know that those who put their faith in Christ never die? Our physical bodies, the Bible actually uses the word for our physical nature. It says that we sleep in Christ. We just, our, our bodies lie down and, and we enter rest. We go to sleep. Our physical bodies go to sleep in Christ. But we have an eternal soul that's more alive now than it's ever been. And when we exit this life and when we leave this body, our spirit will continue to live in the presence of Christ. This is why Paul said, for me to live is Christ. I'm going to continue to live for Jesus while I'm here. But to die is gain. When I die, I'm graduating. When I die, I get to rank up. I get to put all this nastiness behind me, all the evil behind me, because in Christ we possess eternal life. He said, you will never perish. Now, Paul's going to elaborate on this. I love the examples he gives later on in the chapter, but you have to understand that eternal life is not something we're working toward. It's not something we're living toward. It's something that we now hold and have currently as believers in Jesus Christ. It's the gift of God. That's eternal life. And so eternal life is a present condition for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The salvation that we have in Christ is eternal life. Now, again, we've made so much about heaven as if, as if heaven's the ultimate goal. And I'm looking forward to heaven. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to definitely be better than this. Okay? I'm looking forward to that. But, again, we, we, we often talk about being a Christian and being saved as if that's like the ultimate. Right? The ultimate is recognizing that I have received in Christ eternal life. And then number three. This is introduction. Number three. The law of the spirit of life liberates us, this is where the context in this territory will become a little more familiar to those of you who have been with me in the series, the law of the spirit of life liberates us from two other very crucial and important laws. Paul talked a lot about law in chapter 7. Notice in verse number 23, he says, I see another law in my members, physical nature, warring against the law of my mind, and that law brings me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. That's a lot of law, isn't it? It's a lot of law. Paul is, is expressing, as we've already gone through this, we've processed chapter 7 already, but in chapter 7, Paul uh, is where we find this explicit revelation that he talks about how badly he struggled, how he wanted to do the right thing all the time, but there was something in him that just was consistently pulling in the opposite direction. He later writes in Galatians chapter number 5, he says, look, look, walk in the spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh, the body, our physical nature, uh, lust uh, against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are con 
contrary to one another so that you can't do the things that you would. He said, we're going to be in this consistent battle. And I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that the struggle is one of the surest evidences that we've actually been saved. People often, I've had people say to me, man, uh, just tore up and discouraged and depressed about it. Say, man, you know, I, 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 I thought I got saved. I, I, I thought I put my faith in Jesus. It was real. I thought in the moment. And, 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 but now, all these years later, I just, I just consistently struggle. And I'm still battling addiction. I'm still battling these stubborn habits. And I can't seem to get over them. I'm not even sure I'm saved. And I'll look at them and say, man, the fact that you're wrestling with it is one of the surest evidences that you are saved. It's the, it's, the, it's the fact that our physical nature wants to be in charge. We, by nature, want to be our own God. We, by nature, want to be Lord. We want to be the one in charge. We want to be sovereign. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And so we're consistently battling because the Spirit is drawing us in a different direction than our physical nature. Our impulses are drawing us in a different direction. But we have to understand that this passage in Romans 8, 2, it says the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin, number one. The law of the Spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin. What's the law of sin? Well, the law of sin is what Paul was struggling with. He says, I see another law in my physical body, in my members, that wars against the law of my mind. Remember, remember the mind in chapter 7, he's referring to the mind of Christ that was in him, that new nature that's inside of us. He said, the mind, I want to serve the law of Christ, but my physical nature wants to serve the law of sin. In chapter 6, verse number 23, if you just glance across the page, he says concerning the law of sin that the wages of sin is death. He said, this is killing me. It's destroying me. Giving in to my, my old nature is absolutely defeating me. But then he goes on to say, look, you don't have to live in that nonsense. You don't have to continue in this cycle. You don't have to keep being stuck in this vortex. You have a new law that's alive in you. And it's not the law of death. It's the law of life. It's the law of the Spirit. And the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin, number one. But then he says, and the law of death. The law of death is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It says, it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Now, this is the point at which I stop because of the look on your face and say, is this making sense? Okay, I feel like I get redundant with this. Is this, honestly, is it making sense? You follow me. So the second thing that Paul says that the law of Christ, the law of the spirit of life in Christ sets us free from is the law of death. Okay. The law of death is that it's appointed to all mankind, every human being upon the face of the earth. It's appointed unto man once to die. One time. Everybody's going to die one time. Right? Even Jesus died one time. You follow me? It's appointed unto men once to die. But after this, there's judgment for those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? I know that because the Bible explains that, the, that for those who put their faith and trust in Christ, our judgment was put on Christ on the cross. And so our judgment has been taken care of. I'm not going to stand in judgment when I die. You're not going to If you put your faith and trust in Christ, there is therefore now how much condemnation? No condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not going to stand before God in judgment. We're going to stand before him in joy and in worship and in eternal bliss because of what he did for us on the cross. The Bible says he became our curse on the cross. And he took all the punishment, all the penalty, all the pain of my sin and my wrongdoing. He took all those consequences upon himself. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus states that there is no death for those who have been made alive in Christ. That's a beautiful truth. Romans 7, verse number 24, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers his own question as I often do. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus makes me free from the law of sin and the law of death. Okay? Y'all have the introduction? Now let's move on. Okay? I want you to look down in verse number 5. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. To be carnally minded, so to continue in my old mental patterns, to continue living 
Now that I've received new life in Christ and I have the ability to, to transcend my old nature, he says, but if you continue to be carnally minded, it is death. Okay, you're dying a slow death. What are we looking for in life? Well, we're looking for life, right? We're pursuing life, liberty, and, and ultimately happiness. But, but the fact is that if I continue to live in my old ways and think the way I've always thought, it's going to continue to kill me, not eternally speaking, but in this life, I'm going to continue to be defeated and frustrated. You get it? For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded, so to develop this new mindset, to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be so, then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, here's a beautiful truth in verse number nine. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, I told you this before, but I just want to refresh your memory, that Paul is, is consecutively dealing with both worlds that we live in, Okay? Paul is at the same time, okay, consecutively would be one right after the other, wouldn't it? Paul is, at, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for then? Parallel. Say it again. Nope, that ain't the word I'm looking for. Simultaneously. Thank you. It doesn't even start with a C. But anyway, I'm, at usually, I'm usually at least on the right letter. But we are simultaneous, simultaneously living in two worlds. We're living in a physical world and we're living in a spiritual world. And so Paul is simultaneously dealing with both of those realities about the fact that, and, and as we're studying Proverbs on Wednesday night, and Proverbs, we're, we're primarily dealing with this life, about principles that we can employ in this life to just make this world a little bit better place, which would be great. Would you agree with that? The world could use a little makeover. And it can start with us. And so he's dealing, he's dealing with the fact that we live, we live simultaneously in a physical realm, but we also are spirit beings. We've been made alive in Christ. You remember, he, he resurrected us. He regenerated us when we put our faith in him. So now we have this new life, this eternal life abiding in us. And so he says, look, uh, I'm telling you all this stuff. If you make these decisions to continue in your old ways and your old mindset, I'm telling you, it's not going to work out well. Okay, but remember, ultimately, you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit, you're a spirit being, okay, God sees that side of you, but, but God wants the best for you now as well. So verse 9 again, he says, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be the spirit of God dwells in you. And that's a big if that you have to answer for yourself. But then he says in the latter part, now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Verse number 10, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Now, this is complicated. I ain't going to lie. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, I'm going I'm to give you an illustration that I can't verify. Is that Okay. I'm going to give you an illustration that I cannot verify. I've never been able to verify it, but I heard a guy tell a story one time, so I'm going to tell it. It might be true. If it's not, it still serves its purpose. So either, either hear this story as if it's historical fact or hear it like it's a fairy tale that illustrates the truth, either way. But, but I heard a guy explain one time that, that the Romans, which Paul was writing to the Romans here, that the Romans, and, and we do know this historically, the Romans were masterful at, at cruelty. When Christ, Christ was crucified at the hands of the Roman government, and, and crucifixion is the most excruciating way to die. And so they were masterful at, at torture and cruelty. And one of the things I've, I've heard, I've been told that they would do, is when they would drop a prisoner into a, a pit, their, their prison cells were not at any, anything like ours nowadays. They didn't have Wi-Fi and cable TV, you know what I'm saying? They would drop them down into a little dungeon, just a dank, dark, nasty pit, and, and they would also, uh, they would tie a corpse to the back of the person, depending on the crime, if it was a heinous crime, they would tie a corpse to the back of the person before they dropped them into the pit so that they'd have that, that dead weight on their back and they couldn't crawl up out of the pit. And I'm told, I've been told that that's what Paul was referring to here when he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then in verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit 
is life because of righteousness. Now, here is the clever part of the sermon that I heard. The guy told that story, and then he preached a sermon titled, Would Somebody Get This Guy Off of My Back? <laughs> That's such a, so good. I got a game recognizes game. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was good. But the fact is, the fact is, we struggle in our physical body. So, so we could break this down and, and dive real deep into it, but essentially he's just saying, look, your physical body, and I've told you this thus far in the series, our physical nature is not saved. You got to get that. This physical body of mine, and, and yours definitely, <laughs> is, is not saved. In fact, the Bible talks about, and we're going to see it later in Romans, how, how even our physical nature groans, that we just, he, he talks about how we desire to put off this old nature and be, be robed in the righteousness of Christ eternally. And so we understand that our physical nature, we still struggle. And when some folks pretend like they don't, but we all still struggle. He says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of life is because, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what are we pursuing? Are we pursuing happiness or are we pursuing life? We should be pursuing life because Paul said that it's the spirit of life in Christ that invigorates and lets us understand and appropriate how to actually live this life. Verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So in verse 12, Paul says we're debtors not to the flesh, it's never done anything good for us. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but we are debtors to Christ to live according to the Spirit. In other words, Jesus died to set us free, so we owe it to him that we live in that freedom. Right? If Jesus died to make us free, I owe it to him to live in the freedom that he died for. And so, so let me just take the next few minutes. Literally, Mike set a new precedence last Sunday too. And he, he preached the way I've always wanted to. I always want to preach a short sermon. He did well at that. I'm going to try to follow him today, okay? You ready? Did you guys get to Cracker Barrel any sooner last Sunday, by the way? Probably not. <laughs> Here's what I've learned about church people. Here's what I've learned. They're dying for you to just, just let them go. Some of y'all will actually walk out when we start playing music in a minute. That's how eager you are to leave. But then you'll talk for 45 minutes out in the parking lot. Anyway, so when I'm holding you hostage, I know you don't really want to leave. Anyway, here we go. So let me, let me share just a few simple things with you from, from here in Romans. And, and I'm, I want to try to answer the question, how, how do we die to our old ways? If you're anything like I am, and I hope you're not in some ways, but my old nature is, is savage, like very much alive. Nope. Good. Okay. All the spiritual people in the house in the 9 o'clock today. So how do we die to that? How do we, how do we stop it, Right? How do we stop living out these toxic habits? How do we stop living and dwelling in this, in this realm of, of defeat? And so, so here's what I want you to see. He says in verse number 11, this is such a key to the whole, the whole context. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So you have to ask yourself the question, first of all, in simple terms, am I saved? It's an honest question that every person should ask. Has there been a time in my life when, when I was made alive in Christ? Has there been a time in my life when I personally put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Your story doesn't need to sound like mine. It won't look like my story. It won't be anything like mine. But the fact is you need to have your own story of a time when you had a real encounter with God and Jesus became real to you and you recognized the fact that he wasn't just a cute flannel graph story that you heard about in children's church, but that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, took upon himself the form of humanity and died a vicarious death on the cross. And by that I mean he took all of our our sin upon his own body and received the punishment and the penalty and the wages for my sin, which is death. Jesus took death upon himself and died in your place. 
And there has to come a point in time in your journey when you recognize that and you see that Jesus is not a way, but he's the way. He's not just uh, another religious figure in this world, but that he was, he was the very God of all creation manifested in this life. And he came to the earth for the sole purpose and the express reason of saving us. Because we couldn't save ourselves, we were lost, we were broken, we were without hope, but in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And we have to come to that point in our lives when we recognize that and we see that. I remember when I began recognizing my own condition. As a teenager, I thought my problem was with, with drugs and alcohol and, and just being wild. I don't want to give too much detail because some of y'all already know too much detail about my past. It's the cross that I bear, pastoring people who know me. But if I pastored somewhere else, I could make up stories is what I'm saying. But the fact is, I began to see myself as lost, and it was, it was devastating. It was devastating because I was raised in church. I had some bad years as a teenager. Let's be honest. I was pretty rough as a little kid, too. I hear that all the time. What a little jerk I was. But, but the fact is... I, I, I was raised in church. I had a good mom and dad. I was taught the Bible. I knew the commandments. I, I knew the right answers. I was baptized as a, as, a, as a child. But I didn't know God. I didn't know, I, I didn't know what it meant to be born again. I didn't understand when the Bible says things like, like new birth and, 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 and being alive in Christ, that none of that made sense to me because it was all just religious jargon that I had heard and I could have recited but it meant nothing to me internally. There was nothing real inside my life. And so the moment when I really came to, the, to, the rec, to recognize and the realization that I was lost, I was the one in need of saving, that I was without God, that moment was so devastating and yet liberating because it was the recognition of my lostness that turned my heart toward Christ and made me realize that he's what I needed. I didn't need reform and I didn't need to turn over a new leaf. I didn't need more church and more religion. I needed Jesus. And it was in that moment I was gloriously saved and born again. And my life's never been the same. So you have to ask yourself the question before we go any further. Is am I saved? Are you saved? Do you really know Christ as your Savior? Have you had your moment when you put your faith in him? Now, for me, it was in my dad's living room all alone. For you, it could have been on the side of the road. It could have been in a, in a gas station parking lot. It could have been in your school desk. It could have been in a church pew. It could have been in a Sunday school. It could have been out in a field somewhere. It doesn't matter where. It's not the geographic location that makes a difference. It's the fact that you have to have a moment in time in your life when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. You say, well, how do I know? That I've had that. Well, I, I hate to say this. I, I, this sounds so cliche, but you will just know. <laughs> it's just real. God just becomes real to you. And, 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 and when you look back in hindsight and you begin to see the hand of God and all the circumstances that God orchestrated together to bring you to that moment, how that, that God all along standing somewhere in the shadows of your life was leading you to that apex. He was leading you to that moment, that crucial moment of decision where you would know without a doubt what you need is Christ and Christ alone. I can tell you this, I've not been sure of a whole lot of things in my life, but I was sure in that moment that I needed Jesus. There wasn't a doubt in my mind what I needed to do, and that's why I often say when we're given an invitation, look, you know what you need to do right now. You don't need somebody to tell you. You don't, you don't need to come, come and hold your hand and say, Robert, repeat this prayer. There's no magical prayer. There's no, there's, no, there's no recitation, no, no words that you have to repeat after somebody. It's your heart turning toward Christ in faith, and that's going to look different for you. And the words that you say might look different for you. One old boy in the Bible just said, hey, think about me when you get to heaven. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Your words are not what God's looking for. Your, your heart turning toward him is what God is looking for. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I love that. I love the affirmation of that statement. You will be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness, with the mouth confession is made to salvation. And so with that established, 
You have to know that you're saved first and foremost. Secondly, secondly, if we're talking about how do we die to our old ways, well, then I want to say this to you. For those of you that are trying to live as a Christian, at first it's going to feel like the exact opposite of what you want to do. Remember the, the battle that we're in? This dichotomy, this, this wrestling match, the flesh warring against the spirit, my old nature battling against the new nature. So, so, the, so to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit, how do I, how do I listen to the Holy Spirit? How do, I, how do I know that it's the Holy Spirit? Well, again, he has articulated his attributes, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. We know that, Galatians 5, 9 and 10, or 16 and 17, or 18 and 19, it's in there. Uh, <laughs> 22 and 23, finally got there, but Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we understand the evidence of the Holy Spirit. He reveals his attributes to us, but, but, but when we're trying as Christians to follow the Holy Spirit, following the Holy Spirit is going to feel like the exact opposite of what you feel like doing. It'll be foreign to your natural impulses. For example, the Spirit of God is drawing us to meekness and gentleness, Right? Well, most of us are used to rage and contempt. That's all we know. You follow me? I'm serious. Put this, like, take this and apply it to real time in your life. In that moment, when, when you're frustrated, when you're angry, when you're just fuming, it's the last thing you want to do is be nice. The last thing you want to do is be gentle. The last thing you want to do is be meek because you're afraid meekness will be interpreted as weakness and kindness will be taken advantage of. And by the way, sometimes it will be. But the fact is we have to learn to follow the Spirit. What you're going to want to do impulsively will be the exact opposite of what the Spirit is leading you to do. It's true. What you want to do by impulse will, will feel like the exact opposite of what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do. It literally will feel like trying to learn a new language. How many of y'all are bilingual in here? Wow. Seriously? Nobody in the room speaks another language? I speak two languages, English and Pig Latin. Um, but it'll feel like trying to learn a new language. You know it? It will. It, it, it's, it's like this. We, uh, we do that song at Calvary. Y'all like that song that we do here? Years I spent in vanity and pride. So we do that song. Great song. And, uh, but that's not the way I learned that song. And it's not the way some of y'all learned it either. You remember that hymn growing up? How'd it go? It went... Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. That's how we learn that. Mercy there was great and grace was free, pardon there was multiplied to me, me, there, right? So we learned it, so we learned it a completely different way. And so when Tate introduced that to the band and wanted us to do that song and wanted me to sing lead on it, you can ask them. We'd start it. I'd go, years I spent in vanity and, ah, stop! And then you got jerks like Blake that will still sing it that way when I'm trying to sing it the new way. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Completely different melody. Rhythm's different. It feels off. I like it. It's better, isn't it? It's better. Sorry, not sorry to whoever wrote the original melody to that song, but Casting Crowns did a much better job. It's better, but, but to learn it in a new melody, to learn it with a new rhythm, felt so wrong. It felt so off. It just, it didn't feel natural. It felt natural to slide back into the old way of singing. And when you try to follow the Holy Spirit in your life, that's what it's going to feel like. It's going gonna, it's gonna to feel like you're trying to sing an old song with a new melody. It's going to feel like you're, you're still processing through the same life. You're still the same person. You look at the same, same human being in the mirror every single day. You're, you're in the same context in, in most cases, but everything inside you is drawing you to a new way and a new life. And I'm telling you, it's going to take time. It's going to take time. I've been saved for 23 years, and I'm still not used to listening to the Holy Spirit. It's still much easier to do it my way. It's still much easier. 
it's still so much easier just to revert to my old ways of doing things. Yeah? But in order to, and this is what, this is what Paul says here. He says in verse 13, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he said you've been pursuing all these things that, that that's not really the goal. The goal is to pursue life. And in order to pursue life, you're going to have to crush your old life. You're going to have to deal with some traits and, and some habits and some impulses that are natural. They feel it's like, it's like trying to learn how to pitch with your, with your left hand. Right? Oh, lefties, don't look at me weird. You get the, you get the story. You get the example. It just, it's going to feel backwards. And it's not going to feel right, but you're going to have to learn what it is. And it'll feel like something inside of you is dying. Because here's what we do. We have, we have, we have grown so, so accustomed to our ways, our way of doing things, that, that you know, again, especially at our age, right, some of y'all, that are, you know, have reached the age of where you're actually halfway mature, around 40. You know, we've really settled into the way of, way of doing things that we've always done. And it's going to feel very backwards, very opposite, very uncomfortable, very awkward. But we have to give way to the Holy Spirit. We have to start allowing the Holy Spirit in those moments to transform the way we we re react to things and there'll be something inside you that feels like it's dying but the more you give way for the spirit the more life that you'll have even in your physical body the more we pursue Christ and we make him our goal the more we yield our lives our bodies our minds to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit flow through us that's when we find real life Christian people ought to be the happiest people on the planet we should be, but we're not. We ought to be the happiest group of people. You ought to walk in here. Look, some of like a visitor ought to walk in here and walk back out and say, what is wrong with those people? What are they smoking? Right? They ought to leave here and think, man, they're all crazy. They seem, ha they seem genuinely happy. There seems to be a, a, a spirit of just freedom and liberty there. That should be the norm in church. A spirit of liberty and happiness and joy and, and genuine just, just kindness ought to permeate everything that we do. But the fact is we often still live so defeated because we're so used to slipping right back into the, the old rut that we've created over time. And so today, I plead with you, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus the first thing you need to do before you think about anything else I've said today is settle that. Make sure you've got that settled in your heart. That it's real to you. If any man doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. Is the Spirit of Christ living in you? Do you know for sure that you're saved? If you don't today, you can. Father, we pray in this moment that you bless us as we reflect and as we lay our burdens at your feet. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.